Thanks, Andrew, and uh, good to be with you here this morning. Uh, those of you I haven't had the chance to meet yet, I am usually over in Burlington uh, at our Burlington location, but every once in a while, we said it was going to be six to eight weeks. It never seems to be six to eight weeks. It's more like six to eight months that uh, Pastor Brian and I end up switching locations. I don't think I've been here since the fall. Um, but, um, but we do like to kind of rotate around, and Pastor Brian is over in Bel uh, Burlington right now. Uh, if, you really, if you're quick, you could probably catch him if you want to hear him. He's about to start the second service in about 10 minutes. Um, but it's good to be with you here this morning. Uh, great to hear about what, all the good things going on. I was afraid Ting was going to keep dismissing people and there'd be no one left in the room. But... Um, but there's a few of us left. You got to stay. You got me for the morning. And I'm excited to get into God's word with you. There's a chair. I'll take that. Uh, it's just me this morning. My kids and wife. It's a funny thing happens as your kids get older. Uh, my kids used to love coming when we switched locations. They'd run around and have fun. Now they're all in ministry responsibilities on Sunday morning. So uh, Wendy is in the nursery today in Burlington. And Isaac's leading elementary kids. And Bella's leading preschool. So just me here this morning. Um, but they send their greetings. My son just turned 18, which is weird. How many of you have adult children? I am in an adult children category now. Um, so any tips on parenting adult children, I'll take them. Uh, but that's a new season for us. Um, my son says he's now old enough to do things he has no business doing. Um, and he puts voting in that category. Um, so he's voting now. So... But, uh, but it is exciting to have, uh, to have see your kids grow and move into new stages, and, and we're looking forward to that next stage as well. So we're in this Story of Scripture series, and I'm not going to make you clap, but hopefully you know your numbers. I am going to give you a quiz, though, because I know every week I think we tell you what these numbers are, and if you're new with us here today, you uh, may, uh, may want to go back and catch up on some of the series, but we're kind of doing an overview we're trying to do an eight-week flyover of the large story that is kind of told in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, a lot of us sit in church for many years, and we get a lot of stories and sermons on parts of the Bible, but very rarely <clears throat> do we take an idea and say, what's the whole story? What's the whole picture? What's the big picture look like? So we're trying to do that in about eight weeks at Mount Hope, and we've been doing it with these numbers for one 512-5512-41211. So rather than me telling you, I'm going to give you a quiz. Let's see how well Pastor Brian, Andrew, and Justin have been doing here in Belmont. Uh, so it starts off with a five. Anyone know what the first? So you can turn to the table of contents. I'm not going to ask you to name the books of the Bible, but what is the first five? Anyone know what that category is? Torah, Pentateuch, Books of Moses, all of those would have been the correct answer. Genesis through Deuteronomy, right? Yeah, sure, we get the story of creation, and uh, we get the story of the children of Israel start to growing. Yep, Genesis through Deuteronomy. What about the next 12? What is that? History and also theology, right? Because in history, we learn about who God is. History is also theology. We're learning about who God is through history. So that's the five, the 12. The next five is poetry, wisdom, literature, right? Yep, all of that. So we got a lot of uh, songs, psalms, prayers, wisdom, poetry, all in there. And the next five are 
Major prophets, and the next 12 are, and the reason they're called major prophets is length, and the reason they're called minor prophets is also length, right? Not importance, but simply the length of the book, right? All right, great. I don't know how many of you knew that before we started this series, but you know it now, right? That's how your, uh, the Older Testament, we can call it the Older Testament, we can call it the Hebrew Bible, uh, we can call it the Old Covenant, all kinds of things is structured. Uh, so now you know where that is. And we said those last section, poetry, major and minor prophets, all happen within that 12. All happen within that history, right? Um, so those things are happening inside of the history. All right, let's go to the four. What's the four? Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are the four accounts of that, right? Well, I should, before I get to the four, there is a period of time between the 12 and the four, right? Last week, I think Justin talked about that. Anyone remember how, what, how long that period of time is? 400 years. 400 years between the last word we have from God in the Old Testament and the first word we have from God in the New Testament. And that first word comes to a man named Zachariah. Justin did a good job last week. All right. All right. So we got four, one. What's the one? History. And that is the book of Acts. And we're going to jump in there this morning in just a minute. And uh, then after the one, you got 21 letters. And those letters are to who? Churches, individuals, uh, some of them to individual churches, some of them to the large church. And the last one is? prophecy or yeah absolutely apocalyptic literature we're going to get to that in the book of revelation wow give yourselves a hand that was pretty good that was really good some of you knew that before we started this series but i'm guessing a lot probably didn't and uh so that's one of the reasons we're doing this to have an understanding of how your scripture how the holy scriptures are organized and so i'm glad to hear that that's um, where that's kind of sticking with you. All right, we're going to jump into that one today. Let me start, uh, get at it by uh, talking to you about a book by a man, professor and author named Michael Easter. Not sure some of you may have heard of him. He released the book called Comfort Crisis in 2021. <clears throat> and for it, Easter traveled about 30,000 miles around the globe researching and experiencing the benefits of pushing ourselves mentally and physically to the limits and accomplishing things we didn't think we could do. Uh, he argues that research shows that living in discomfort, and for him this meant at least once a year, will dramatically improve your health and happiness. And when we do things, we learn things about ourselves. Uh, and he says the problem is that in our culture that is filled with comforts, we fight to avoid uncomfortable situations, and we miss out on the benefits of those uncomfortable situations. So this, uh, I, I was listening to how I came across Michael Easter's stuff. I was listening to a podcast by Mike Rowe uh, called uh, The Way I Heard It, and he was interviewing Easter. And he claims, this is what Easter claims, that our comfortable lives... Everything from the chairs that we sit in, that you're sitting in right now with a nice lumbar support, nice and comfortable. You're not sitting in a hard wooden pew. And Easter would argue that is to your detriment, that you are too comfortable and that it is actually hurting uh, you in the long run. 
<clears throat> everything from the chairs we sit in to the way our products are delivered, that we very rarely have to carry anything heavier than our devices, our phone. Uh, you're not carrying, you know, things back from the market. You're often putting them in a trunk or having them delivered right to your house. And he would say that uh, this level of comfort is actually hurting us at times. And so with this in mind, he latched on to this idea of putting himself and some others in some uncomfortable situations at least once a year. And on the podcast, he talks about two rules. Here's the rules for your uncomfortable situation. Two rules. First rule is this. Whatever you attempt to accomplish when you do this kind of once a year purposeful discomfort has to have a 50-50 chance of succeeding. In other words, you've got to have a 50% chance that you're going to fail at it. That's the first rule. The second rule is don't die. The second rule seems pretty important. Uh, but you, the second one, this causes them to attempt things like carrying an 85-pound rock five miles underwater below a channel in California and constantly surfacing to get air, going back down to carry the rock and carrying it five miles under water. Sounds fun, right? Uh, pretty uncomfortable and a high rate of possible failure. The first rule is interesting, this 50-50 rate. When was the last time you attempted something that had at least a 50% chance of failure. Not that it would simply be hard, and that, but you would still get it done. Not that you might get a B instead of an A. Not that you might not get it done as quickly as you thought, but you legitimately had a 50% chance of failing at it. I've got to be honest, when I thought about this, it's hard for me to think of many things in my life that would fit in that category. Even if I attempt hard things, there is often a vast, sometimes visible, often invisible support network that would rarely allow complete and utter failure. As we come to this part of the story of Scripture, we're for the first time looking at one book, just one book of the Bible, and in this one, there is a main assignment, a job, a task that is given, and that it is crazy hard. In fact, if we were to use Easter's two rules for uncomfortable tasks, the assignment is almost certainly doomed to failure, way north of 50% chance of failure. Oh, and when they attempt it, they pretty much all die. So they violate rule number two also. But this assignment is critical, and it's a critical turning point in the story of Scripture. It's an assignment not only given by Jesus to his followers, his disciples back then, but it's an assignment that continues for Jesus's followers today. But before the assignment is given, he gives them a rather strange instruction, that is Jesus. He tells them to wait. He says, wait, don't start yet, but go and wait. It might seem like a strange command when you're given a difficult assignment, but it's a crucial step 
that changes their odds of success dramatically. So turn to Acts chapter 1 with me, would you? Acts chapter 1. So we're going to that one. It's the first book after the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. If you didn't bring a copy of the scriptures with you, you can grab a chair rack Bible from the chair right below you. And if you do, you will be on page 908 in the Bible in your chair rack, Acts chapter 1. And we're going to look at the verses 1 through 11 this morning, but I'm going to start with just verses 1 through 5. Don, I feel like I'm getting ringing. Is that just me up here? That's just me up here. All right, as long as you can hear me. All right, Acts chapter 1, we're going to start with verses 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, all right, let's stop there, because what did we just learn? What did we just learn? It's a sequel, second book. So if he, if he starts out in the first book, there must have been, this is the second book. What was the first book? Gospel. Which gospel? Luke, right? All right. So Acts is actually Luke part two. Um, so Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. He wrote two of them. Do you know why there are two books? Why he wrote one and just didn't continue on writing? Well, we don't know, but probably because he ran out of scroll. Uh, both Luke and Acts are about the same length and probably about the length of a scroll. So he wrote one, and then after researching, he wrote the other. And so he continues, he starts out Luke writing to this person, Theophilus, and then he continues in Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them. Say this, say, say the word alive with me. He presented himself alive, that's going to become important, to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to, say the next word with me, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's take a moment just to pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and after hearing your word, Lord, we ask that you would open not only our ears to hear it, Lord, but would you open our hearts to understand it? Would you open our minds to understand it? And Lord, would you open us up to what you want to say to us today? Father, we have a few minutes here this morning together. But we're asking that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to us a word for each and every person in this room today. Lord, allow us to hear what you would have to say and apply it to our lives and then go and live our lives for you. Lord, let my words be your words. Let nothing I say get in the way of what you want to say today. We put ourselves out before you. We trust that you are here and that you are at work and that you have something to say. So lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
First idea for us to understand as we come to Acts chapter 1 today is the Holy Spirit is God with you. The Holy Spirit is God with you. Jesus' disciples had had Jesus, God with them, for three years, but now Jesus has ascended into heaven, and they're going to wait for something else. They're going to wait for the Holy Spirit to be with them. We have this big theme in the story of Scripture that we've been looking at, and that is God with us so that we can be with him. There are many other ways you can talk about what the large idea of Scripture is. That's one way we've put it. And we're tracing the presence of God through Scripture. And the way it started was back in Eden. We started in Genesis. Adam, Eve, God, the garden. God with humanity. And that lasted for, well, we don't quite know how long, but at some point there came brokenness into that situation. Sin entered the world, and what one of the great travesties of what sin did is it caused a barrier to be between now God and humanity. And there was now this, there was not this free-flowing relationship of God and humanity because sin had entered in and there became a barrier. And the rest of the story of Scripture is really God making a way to get back to that relationship to be in God's presence without that barrier. There's several things throughout the scripture that we've looked at that have kind of showed us the the avenue back into that or given us glimpses into that or had God's localized presence we've seen. We saw a tabernacle with Moses, and in that tabernacle, there was a place called the Most Holy Place. And we're told that God's presence somehow, not the entirety of God's presence, because God is everywhere, he can't be completely confined, but some part of God's presence manifested or shown or or, or just was there in a place called the most holy place. And Moses was able to go back into that place and be in God's presence. And later after Moses' death, one priest once a year went into that place where God's presence was. After the tabernacle, Solomon, one of the kings, you remember we talked about the kings, Solomon built a temple, more of a permanent place, but really on the same design as the tabernacle, it also had a most holy place where also the presence of God dwelt and was there, and one priest, once a year, was able to go behind the curtain and be in the presence of God. Solomon's temple was destroyed in the exile, and a second temple was built by Zerubbabel, and it was not nearly as elaborate as the first. It was, it was a poor man's temple at first, um, but it was also more importantly never, as we can see, inhabited by the presence of God. Never do we have an account like we did in the tabernacle or in Solomon's temple that God's presence came and dwelt in that most holy place. Herod built it up more uh, during the time of the Romans, and it became this beautiful edifice and this beautiful temple, but still no evidence that God's presence was there the way it was before. 400 years, 500 years from the temple to the time of Jesus. And we don't have the presence of God in the temple of God until, of course, Joseph and Mary come with baby Jesus and bring him into the temple to dedicate him And then the very presence of God is once again in the temple of God, in the incarnate Son of God, in the temple. 
Jesus will come back as he matures as a man into the presence. He'll, he'll, he'll turn over tables in the temple. He'll rearrange the furniture in his house. But we once again see that Jesus and God's presence is there. But then, as we learned last week, Jesus dies on the cross. And one of the great objects lessons of all time when Jesus is dying on the cross is that curtain that is as thick as a person's hand and about three stories tall is torn from top to bottom at the moment of the crucifixion by God himself, showing that the presence of God was not there, but more importantly, is no longer confined to that most holy place. So where then does the presence of God go from there? That brings us to the book of Acts. This part is the waiting. And they wait until a day, a holiday actually, that's called Pentecost. Maybe you've heard of it. Pentecost was already a holiday on the Jewish calendar. It was not invented in the New Testament. It was not invented in the time of Jesus. It was something the Jewish people celebrated for many years. You can figure it out. Pentecost, penta means 50, is 50 days after the Passover. So after the Passover, 50 days later, the Passover celebrated mainly uh, the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. 50 days later, marked their showing up at the base of Mount Sinai and at the base of Mount Sinai where God's presence actually came down in a fiery wind storm and spoke to the people supposedly 50 days after Passover and so it was during that feast that Jesus's disciples of course, hundreds of years later, after the original Pentecost, hundreds of years later are now in Jerusalem waiting because Jesus told them to wait. They're in a room, and they're waiting. They're praying. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, here's what we read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So now what we see is the presence of God no longer behind a curtain or no longer in a place where one priest goes once a year to, to experience it. Now we see the presence of God, the Spirit of God, now within those who have trusted and put their faith in Jesus, within the followers of Jesus, within the church. We actually see God's presence now dwelling with and in his people, so that Paul writes this in a letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Just stop there for a second. I mean, think about the impact of that statement. I mean, we can rush past that, but think about the word temple. I mean, we're talking about that beautiful temple that Solomon built. 
That, that place where God's presence dwelt. They're thinking about, in their minds, this Herod's temple that had this beautiful edifice that you, know, you would see from miles away as you're walking up to Jerusalem on your journey up there on the holy days, and you would almost be blinded by the sun shining off it, seeing it from a distance. And Paul says these words, Do you not know that you are God's temple? That now you are this structure, that you are this dwelling place where God's spirit lives. That probably ought to make a difference for us. In fact, that's exactly what Paul is saying when he writes this to the Corinthians. If you are a place that the spirit of God inhabits, it probably ought to make a difference in how you live your life. Life. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is one of the most beautiful aspects of our faith is the fact that God's spirit now lives in you. You have God's presence in you. We are not fully in the presence of God as we one day will be. We see Paul writes in a mirror dimly, one day we will see face to face. One day we won't need the sun because the light of the Christ himself will be enough. Will, light the, will be the light of the nation and the city that God has created. We're not there yet, but you have God's presence that lives within you. And this is a gift. But the story doesn't stop there because the gift has a purpose. The gift has a job. Have you ever noticed that some gifts come with a purpose or some gifts come with an assignment or a task? I won't, last week was Mother's Day. I won't ask if you gave a gift that comes with a task and an assignment. But sometimes moms get gifts that come with tasks and assignments. Maybe you'd like flowers and you got an appliance instead. It comes with a task or an assignment. Some moms, maybe you got a air fryer for Mother's Day or event. all good gifts. They just come with a task or an assignment. My kids make kind of fun of me for one Christmas giving my mom a pasta maker for Christmas. I mean, it kind of was a message. It was like, yeah, I love you and I'd like you to make some pasta for me. Um, they make fun of me, but they also don't mind eating the pasta. Um, some gifts come with a task, right? Some gifts come with an assignment. Maybe you're a teenager and you got your first car and your parents gave you your first car and you thought, oh, awesome, I have my first car. And the words are, now you can drive your sister everywhere because the gift came with an assignment. The gift of the Holy Spirit comes with an assignment. It comes with a task. It's the Holy Spirit is not given to you. The Holy Spirit is uh, called the comforter, but he's not given to you for your comfort alone. I think sometimes we might think that that's the case. That sometimes uh, God's Spirit is given to me and it's just me and Jesus and me and the Holy Spirit and we're cool and it's kumbaya and, and everything's great and I have God's Spirit just to make me feel good. But no, the reason the Holy Spirit is the comforter is because there are things in your life that you're going to experience that you're going to need comforting in the midst of because you are going to be uncomfortable. And part of that is because of the task that God has called you to, because of the work that God has called you to, because of the assignment 
that God has given to you. We've been given the Holy Spirit for a reason and not just to sit around and enjoy the Holy Spirit. My father-in-law uses the illustration of this, uh, that sometimes Christians, uh, when they just go on learning and keep things to themselves, they're kind of like building a boat in the basement. And that's a pretty good picture. We're kind of building a boat in a basement sometimes. Like, like yeah, it's cool to have a boat, but it's never going to see the water. It's never going to do what it's supposed to do when it's sitting in a basement. You and I have been given the Holy Spirit, but it's for a purpose. It's because there's a job and an assignment. So let's get back to Acts chapter 1 and let's see what that assignment is. Acts chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 6 where we left off. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're all like, this is it, right, Jesus? I mean, you're here. You were dead. Now you're not. No one can kill you. Like, we've got the ultimate warrior on our side. Like, we're going to do this. Now, we're taking down Rome now. Like, we've got the superhero that nobody can kill. And so they say, are you now? Are we going to do it now? Because we, you know, we didn't see the cross coming, but now are we going to do it? And Jesus says, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my, say this next word with me, witnesses. Let's say it a little louder. Witnesses. In Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Let's put it this way. God's witness empowers you to be a witness. God's witness, God's spirit with you, God's presence with you is there to empower you to be a witness. That was the assignment. That was the job. This is the turning point in the story. Jesus says, yeah, I'm going away for a while. You're going to have God's spirit, but it's for a job. And the job is for you to be a witness. All the way to the ends of the earth. And these group of people must have looked around and thought that is an impossible task. Which is why Jesus told them to wait. Well, what were they supposed to be witnesses of? Yeah, ever think about that? I mean, if you're a witness, I mean, he means what we mean by witness. You saw something, now go, you have to tell someone. Like, tell people what you saw. That's what a witness does, right? You go to court, what did you see? Tell us what you saw. Well, what were they supposed to be witnesses of? For the disciples, it was actually very clear what they were supposed to be witnesses of. In Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, the disciples are having a conversation. And here's the conversation. There were 12 of us, now there's 11. We need another guy. We're going to round up the number to 12. So I don't know why they felt that. I don't know. There were 12 tribes in Israel. There were 12s, kind of a number God seems to like. But for some reason, they said, we are 11. We need to be 12. 
Let's pick a guy to fill Judas's spot because that didn't go the way we thought it was going to go. And we need to fill a guy to fill his spot. And listen to the criteria. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 1, 21 to 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Well, that makes sense. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. Okay, with us the whole time. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And actually, that's the key word. They were called to be witnesses to the resurrection. The guy that was supposed to join, Matthias, the one that got, you know, got chosen to join, he was supposed to be with them a witness to the resurrection. And if you, don't, if you read the book of Acts in parts, you might not catch it. But if you listen through the entire Bible in one sitting, or the entire book of Acts in one sitting, you're going to catch it, how often the resurrection is connected with witnessing. And you might think, well, the message is repent. Yep, repent is important. But I'm telling you, in the book of Acts, every sermon is about Jesus is risen. It's about the resurrection. And in fact, most people are pretty fine with everything they have to say until they get to the place where they say Jesus is raised from the dead. And that causes a problem. Let me just give you, let me, let me tell you what I'm saying. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter's preaching. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Acts chapter 3, verse 15, Peter's preaching again. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts 5, verse 30 to 32, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. Acts chapter 10, Peter again preaching, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, and he has chosen, we are chosen by God as witnesses that he rose from the dead. Acts chapter 13, Paul preaching, God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So Paul wasn't there when Jesus was raised from the dead, but in Acts chapter 13, he said those that were there, they're witnesses to his resurrection. It was very clear what they were supposed to be witnesses to, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Witness always includes testifying about the resurrection. And we might not always think of that. Uh, We might think that there's all kinds of other things involved in witnessing, and sometimes there are, but it cannot stop short of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And why is it so significant? Because the resurrection completely validates Jesus' message. Everything he said is based on the fact that he was risen from the dead. Everything, if he hadn't been risen from the dead, then forget everything else he said. The resurrection validates it. But also this, because salvation must involve being rescued from death. Death is a result of sin and the fall. And if God hasn't cured death, then he has not provided a savior. So it's always going to involve resurrection. N.T. Wright says this, death is the last weapon of the tyrant. And the point of the resurrection is that death has been defeated. Let me read you um, one quote from Pastor Tim Keller, who this past week went home to be with the Lord after a 
battle with cancer. And uh, many of you probably are familiar with the writings of Tim Keller, and uh, he certainly has had a great influence, I know, on myself and many of the pastors. We have learned in recent years how, uh, unfortunately, not to put our trust in people and that we never know a person completely. And I hope nothing ever comes out about Pastor Tim Keller that we did not know or anything like that. To my knowledge, he was a man who lived his life um, in service of God and his glory and his church. And we're grateful for the service that he provided in uh, planting a church in the city when nobody wanted to go to the city, when it wasn't cool to be in the city. Tim Keller went to the city in New York and showed that God loves the city and that churches can be planted there. Uh, He wasn't the only one doing it, but he certainly was probably one of the most well-known recently. He says this about the resurrection. He says, we should be more sympathetic to our skeptical friends. The resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth. And the reason is because how do people decide what they believe? They decide what they believe by reading it and saying, I like it or I don't like it. Over the years, I've had to say to many people, well, uh, over the years, I've had many people say, well, I could never be a Christian. I say, why? Well, there are parts of the Bible I find offensive. I remember years ago, Keller says, it had to do with money. In my little church in Virginia, people were often offended by what the Bible said about money. Today in New York, they are much more offended by what the Bible says about sex. I usually say, let me ask you a question. Are you saying because there are parts of the Bible that you don't like that Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead? You're... uh, Sorry, lost my place here. That Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead. They say, well, no, I guess I'm not saying that. I said, well, every part of the Bible is important. But would you please put the ethical teaching aside for a minute? And here's the point. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you're going to have to deal with everything in the Bible. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't know why you're vexing yourself over that. But the fact of the matter is, Paul was more offended by Christianity than you. He was killing Christians, and we don't advise that. But when he realized Jesus had been raised, it didn't matter what offended him anymore. It didn't matter because it was true. And we have to keep that in mind. The resurrection is a paradigm-shattering historical event. It's why you and I, as we are called to be witnesses, cannot stop short of saying, and Jesus was raised from the dead, and Jesus was resurrected. And until we get to that point, I would argue that we have stopped short of fully being witnesses. Until we get to the point that we say, we serve a risen Lord who was dead and is alive. So the disciples were called to be witnesses to the resurrection. What about you and me? I have not seen the risen Jesus personally. I'm going to guess most of you probably haven't either. So what's your job? What are we to be witnesses to? Well, like the Apostle Paul, who says this in Acts chapter 22, 15, Paul says, for you will be a witness for him. This is what God said to Paul. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. 
So you and I were not personally witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you are called to be a witness of what you have seen and heard. What have you seen God do in your life? You're supposed to tell people about that. Where have you seen God work in your life? That's what you are witness to. What have you heard about the resurrection? What have you heard from reliable sources about Jesus being raised from the dead? That's what you and I are witnesses to. You and I are witnesses to what we have seen and heard about this Jesus. You have a job to do. You have work to do. You are called to be witnesses. Who were you called to be witnesses to? I'm going to just glance over one of the most important truths in Scripture in about 30 seconds. So hear it quickly. Acts chapter 15 is one of the most significant chapters in the book of Acts, if not the entirety of the New Testament. Here's why. Because it's also a turning point in the story. It actually brings you and I into the story. It's called the Council of Jerusalem. And here was the question. Do those who are not Jewish have to become Jewish in order to follow the Jewish Messiah? Do those non-Jewish people have to become first Jewish before they are able to follow Jesus? Do men have to undergo circumcision? Do they have to follow the law that the Jewish people follow? Do they have to first become Jewish? The council met and decided no. That those who are not Jewish did not need to become Jewish before following this Messiah who was Jewish. And it's a significant moment because almost all of us, I'm guessing in here, unless you are of Jewish descent, brings us, says you, are recipients of God's message. What it really does, and I, I'm not going to go into that, it's the Abrahamic covenant. Remember back when we talked about the Abrahamic covenant? You will be a blessing to the whole earth. Well, how are you going to be a blessing to the whole earth? Because now this has expanded it's expanded beyond just the Jewish people. It's expanded to the whole earth, and now the message goes out for everyone. And I would encourage you, listen to the book of Acts or read the book of Acts if you haven't done that in a while, because the way, Paul, uh, the way God gets this message across to Peter is so cool, but it takes a lot of work, and eventually the Jerusalem Council, under God's inspiration and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says no. All can hear. So we go out and we share this message and we are witnesses to everyone. So the work is left to do. Let's pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 1. Here's, here we go. Let's finish out this section. Verse 10 of chapter 1 says this. And while they were gazing into heaven, remember he just went up. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Don't just stand there looking up. Jesus is coming back, and you and I have work to do in the meantime. You're called to be a witness. Not just standing there gazing, waiting for Jesus to come back. You and I are called to be witnesses. God with you empowers you to tell others that God wants to be with them. That Jesus has been raised from the dead. That they might be with him. And ask Ting and uh, worship team to come back. For a small group of 11 guys and some others in a small 
seemingly insignificant part of the Roman Empire. The task of taking the message of Jesus to the whole known world would seem to have a 100% fail rate. I mean, think about it. Just a few people standing around. Take this message of a man who was crucified by the Roman Empire. Take it and get this message out that he has risen and raised from the dead and get it out to the whole known world. But by the end of the book of Acts, by the end of the book of Acts, by the time you hit chapter 28, what you see is Paul in prison, but in a prison in Rome. And the message of Jesus is even penetrating into the home of Caesar. And this message from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 28 has now gone, really, the symbolism is, is, is undeniable, going to the whole known world. Within a few centuries, for good or for ill, a Roman emperor named Constantine will proclaim Christianity as the official religion of the empire. What happened from there was not always in accordance with Jesus' teaching, but the mission of being witnesses to the world is being accomplished. And it is still being accomplished today. And so as we close out our time together this morning, how do we respond? How do we respond to God's message? You are here either to gain experience or you need to witness to what you've already experienced. You're here either to encounter the God who calls you to repentance and calls you to faith in the resurrected Jesus, to come and have him to dwell within you and to know this presence of God living in you. Or maybe you're coming to say, I've already experienced that God, but I need the power of your Holy Spirit to help me to be a witness to you in the world that you've called me to witness to what I've seen and heard. What's interesting about this Holy Spirit is in Acts chapter 2, he comes down and he fills them. But then in Acts chapter 4, we see it again, that after they've been uh, taken and beaten, that they come together and pray. And once again, the Holy Spirit fills them in order to accomplish the work that God has called them to Dave, in this difficult place in? that God has called them to. Maybe you. We're really tight on time. Maybe you sit here this morning and you say, yeah, I know God's called me to be a witness. I haven't been very good at it. I know I'm supposed to do it. I'm not sure how to do it. I, honestly, if we were to sit down, you and I to talk, maybe you'd say to me, I'm afraid to do it. I'm afraid of what it might cost. I'm afraid it might cost my job. I'm afraid it might cost some prestige. I'm afraid it might cost my reputation. I'm afraid people might laugh at me. I don't know. Maybe there's these things, but here's what I've called you to do. You cannot do the work that God has called you to on your own, and he is not asking you to do that. What he's asking you to do is to say, God, let your Holy Spirit fill me. Let your Holy Spirit empower me for the work that you have called me to. Fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might be your witness in the world that you have called me to. A witness with the acts that we have and the love that we show for sure, but also a witness in the words that we use in sharing that there is a God who loves you 
There is a God who came to be with you so you could be with him. There is a God who was dead and was raised again because he has power over death. And he invites you through his son, Jesus Christ, to also go on living forever with him in his presence. That this is the message of the gospel. Last week, I'm not sure if Justin used it here or not, but last week I used this one summary of the gospel by Dick Foth that I really like. Dick Foth's put it this way. God, in a sense, says this. This is the gospel. I'll leave my place. I'll come to your place. I'll take your place. And then we'll go back to my place. And in a sense, that's the message of the gospel, except for one thing. In between taking your place and going back to his place, God has work for you to do. And that work is to be a witness for what you have seen and heard to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. God, we so often, oh God, we so often look at the work we're called to do and we think, that we're supposed to do it in our own strength. Oh, Lord, I think sometimes we think that you're going to be more pleased with us if we would do it on our own than if we would do it with you. I think somehow we get caught up in a warped thinking, Lord, that, that if we could do it on our own and just say, God, look what I did, that that would make you happier than when we come to you and say, God, I can't do it. I need your spirit. I need you to be with me. I need you to fill me. I need you to empower me for the work that you called me to. Oh, God, it's in our weakness that you show yourself strong. This job is, it is 100% fail without you, Lord. We can't change a heart. We can't change a life. We don't save anybody. Where we simply witness and even that we cannot do without the power of your spirit. So, Lord, this morning, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you fill us with your spirit to do the work that you've called us to do? Because, Lord, we don't have the strength. And it's crazy for us to even think we do on our own. We need you today. So fill your church with your spirit and your presence today. Fill us again for the work that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Let's sing this song. But as we do, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given a work to do. Would you just, I invite you to maybe put your hands out, open your hands in a, in a posture that says, Lord, fill me. Lord, I'm open to you. Lord, give me what I need from your spirit for the work that you've called me to do. And let's invite the spirit into our lives and Jesus into our lives today.